Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Josh Terry of Workshop Management. Josh gets into what it's like being a manager. We get into all sorts of things, including his story and all sorts of things I think that are very rarely discussed about how what goes into marketing a band, breaking a band, and I think this is a particularly insightful episode for those of you who are looking to break into the music business and do bigger and better things. Josh talks about managing bands like Mayday Parade. We go through a whole slew of things that aren't always talked about in the management domain. I think this is a great conversation, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So tell me about your background in music. I got in music, so when I was 18, I went to college and my goal in college was to be a newspaper editorial writer. And within a, within a week of taking classes, I realized I didn't read newspapers and I didn't care for the classes that I was taking. I was kind of <laughs> bored with it. So, uh, so, so if you didn't read newspapers, why did you want to be that? Well, in, in, in high school, I, I, was, I was very involved in my student newspaper. And I, oh. there was a weird thing of loving the idea of being able to put words on page uh-huh. And people would have to read them. I think it was a, like kind of a narcissistic high school mentality <laughs> in that sense. Um, but I, I was really good at it, and I, I enjoyed that. But I, I, I realized I, I was more of, more interested in kind of the editorial aspect than I was the actual news aspect. And college kind of made that a little bit more clear for me. So by by kind of learning that I wasn't interested in that, I, I kind of was stuck because I I went to college to be a journalism major. And I went to a really good college for that. And then a weekend, I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. So um, so a friend of mine recommended, she, she said, hey, like, you're a freshman in college. You should just kind of join some some campus stuff and just see what is of interest while you figure out your major. And so I was in college at the, at the height of the Napster era. Uh-huh. And so um, a lot of my free time when I wasn't studying was spent downloading a bunch of stuff illegally and mm-hmm. listening to it or checking out, like, Hey, here's the three clubs in our town. Who's playing this week? I don't know who these bands are. They're regional and small. Let me download all their music, listen to it, and if I like it, I'll go to the show. And so Napster came at a great time. I was a music fan, but not an avid music fan until I got into college and started doing that. And by doing that, I was like, I really like music. Maybe there's something on campus that's music related. And so my friend 
recommended two things. One, my school had their bicentennial um, for the school where they would bring in speakers that speak to the mission of the university. And one of, I was on the, I joined a committee that brought Dr. Patch Adams to campus, who is hands down the worst human being I've ever met in my life. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it was a good experience to kind of be behind the scenes of putting something that huge on for the university, work with someone who I had an impression of, met, had a completely different impression of, but still when he walked on stage, commanded the crowd, had those feel-good feelings, when he walked off stage, was just a miserable old man. <laughs> and oh, so, that's funny. So it was very, they're very interesting to that. And then also, um, I joined, I walked into the student programming board and said, hey, I like music. I want to get involved in something. Do you have anything I can get involved in? And they said, yeah, we have this concert board. And there was three people on the board. There was this girl named Mackenzie, her boyfriend, and her best friend. And they're like, yeah, we, we bring concerts to campus. So you want to join that? Just join that. And so I, I sat down with them, and they had a concert. A week later, they had this band um, called Jimmy's Chicken Shack, who had like a big <laughs> yeah, yeah, alternative yeah. radio weird single at the time. Yep. And I, we did this show at the ballroom, and I, I was kind of the gopher. I was the guy that set up the parking cones and made sure people parked, and I helped with load in. I had no clue what I was doing. And they put it in this 750-capacity ballroom. Three people showed up outside of the three other people I was on staff with. <laughs> and, and the girl that was in charge had a nervous breakdown, ran out of the event. Obviously, she quit the concert board. And when she quit the concert board, so did her boyfriend and her best friend. And that left little old me. And so they're like... <laughs> Do you want to, do you want to run the concert board as an eighteen year old kid? And so so you know you'll 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 kind of equate that people having nervous breakdowns help me get jobs a lot in life after this. But this was kind of the start of it. So I I did that. Um, they put me in charge of the board. I was green as grass. Had no clue what I was doing. And uh, in three years, our concert board went from having pretty much two shows a year where we blew all the money to. I think at the height of it, I went from having the staff of three that I started with to a staff of 75. Wow. I, went from having a con- I went from having a concert budget of $33,000 a year to when I left a concert budget of over $300,000 a year. Um, we started being profitable with shows. We had shows. We'd have a weekly local artist that would come and play on our patio for free. We would have two or three regional shows a month, and we'd have big national shows. We had everything from, we hosted two MTV Campus Invasions. Right after I left, we had set it up to a place to where they could bring Kanye West in. So like, we did a lot of work to kind of really build that board, and I worked with a lot of really good kids and people that were my age that were also really passionate about music. And it was a really kind of exciting time in my life. And so I did that. And because I had kind of learned early on, like as I was 18, like I'm good at this. I think this could be fun. Everyone told me like I was in South Carolina, so there was not a lot of job opportunity, but Mm. there were a lot of people that were booking regional bands or managing regional bands or had clubs. And so I kind of just engulfed myself with internships. I think I had, I think I had close to 14 internships in college. So I interned for small management companies. I interned for a record label that was owned by members of Hootie and the Blowfish. Worked for a small booking agent. I worked for some talent promoters that that bought concerts for like big outdoor festivals and music venues. And a lot of those, a lot of those were very great experience. And a lot of those were like really one-on-one on learning what it's like to work with drug dealers. So that was really <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yep, yep. So, sounds so, like the music business. Yeah, exactly. It was great music business one-on-one from a green, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed kid from South Carolina. And so I, uh, I did that. And uh, so I had a lot of good experience. And, and the thing I really gained from 
interning for free, it was like I had to be good at my time schedule because I had to go to class, obviously, so I didn't flunk out and my mom get mad at me. Um, I had to make sure I could hit one or two of these internships a day, study when I could go home, do the concert board thing, and then also be able to go and like work at clubs at night and put up posters or help load in bands or you know just help with whatever people needed. And so by the time I graduated college, well, I, I would say by the time I was a junior, I knew pretty much anyone who was anyone in the Southeast that was doing things. And so it made a very easy transition for me at that point to, um, to say, okay, like I think I have a shot at somebody helping to hire me after this. And that's when, you know, so by listening to Napster, I had started coming across these things called the Aware Compilations, which were at the time... This was this was kind of pre iTunes, pre really digital boom era. The Aware compilations were these physical CDs that were put in retail stores and sold online through this thing called the Aware Store, which was basically like a physical version of iTunes for unsigned bands before. And I started noticing that a lot of the bands I was listening to ended up on these compilations. So I did some research, and these compilations were basically they put like twelve unsigned bands on these compilations and within next year about 70% of them were signed to major label deals. So it became huh. this like weird A&R tool that this company in Chicago called Aware Records was doing. And so I became kind of fascinated. I started researching on this company and uh, learned that it was like a company that would find these young bands that basically had nothing going on but just had some good songs. They would help kind of craft and build their careers and they would help blow these artists up into kind of major household names. Some of the so that some of the things they had done is they had they were the company that discovered John Mayer. They were the company that discovered Train. They were the company that discovered Five for Fighting. And so in college, those were a lot of the bands that I, I was a very hot AC friendly. I was listening to a lot of those types of bands. So I, I kind of researched it and I learned that they had this, they had a thing called the rep program, which was like a street team. They had no reps in the Southeast. I was the only rep for five surrounding states of South Carolina. So wow. whenever Whenever John Mayer would play the Georgia Theater, I would drive down to Athens, Georgia. Whenever Train would come and play in Charlotte, I would drive up to the Tremont Music Hall and I would put up posters and I would help sell merch. And so it gave me a good connection to those guys. And so my junior year, I needed a big internship. I'd interned for everybody in the South for free. I'd swept floors and made copies and gotten yelled at. I'd done everything. So, so, so let's get into one of these. Uh, one yeah. of this, because a lot of people who I think are probably trying to break into the music business are like, oh, should I go intern at 14 different places? Do you, in retrospect, think it was a good thing or should you have concentrated more at like five of them or three of them? Like, wh what's your hindsight on that? I think, you know, at the time, I think everybody thought I was an idiot. No, I, think okay. everybody, I think everybody thought, like, Josh is not getting the proper college experience. You know, I wasn't, you know, I had friends, but I wasn't going to keggers every night and stuff. Like, I was running my butt off. And I think we have a lot of kids that intern for us now, and, like, they go through that same struggle. Of like, should I just do a couple internships that are bigger, that, that might be? And I, say, I, I flat up tell everybody, no. Like, the best thing I ever did in college was be stupid enough to take chances. And so I... I think having 14 internships with 14 very different companies that had multiple, everything from working in a dude's basement to working, you know, to working with a band like Hootie and the Blowfish at yeah. the time who, who were, you know, who were selling millions of records and were a big arena band. Like, I think all those experiences were good because now as a manager, I have to work with varying level of companies and varying level of people. And if nothing else, it taught me really good people skills, 
it taught me to kind of appreciate the ups and the downs of the music business. Mm. And I learned, I, I worked for a bunch of different types of companies from record labels to booking agents, to managers, to talent promoters, like to venues. Like I learned what I liked and I didn't like. So, mm. so kind of by the time I was a junior and had kind of ventured out that I was going to start my own business, I kind of said, I just want to do management because managers get to be involved in every aspect of the band. They get to be the centerpiece of this thing, they get to be creative, but they also have to be very business-minded. And at the end of the day, the artist's loyalty is typically, if the manager's doing a good job, is number one with the manager, and he's the less likely to get screwed at the end of the day. Bands always hate their record label. Bands always get <laughs> mad if their booking agent doesn't get on enough shows. And bands hate paying their business manager or lawyer money, even, those even though those people tend to protect them better than anybody else. But the manager is the person that this kid's going to call when he's got a dream. Or the kid's going to call when his girlfriend dumped him because he was on the road too long. Or the kid's going to call more than he's going to call his mom, his sister, his girlfriend. Because that's the person helping him achieve a dream and is in the foxhole with him. And mm -hmm. so there was something, I worked with a lot of really good younger managers when I was in college that were having bands that were either starting to get signed to like smaller major labels or indie labels or were just managing really good regional bands. And so I, I, I take those moments from college really seriously and I have a great deal of, I have a couple of people that I interned for college that if I ever saw him again, I would be totally fine to punch him in the face. But I think <laughs> more often than not, I have guys that I think took a chance on a kid that had no background in music, had no family relationship in music, and said, this kid's going to work really hard. This kid's got a good attitude. This kid's willing to be a sponge. And yeah, he's probably a little stupid at this point because he doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. But they, they gave me an opportunity. And so I have a lot of loyalty for those guys and what they taught me and, and how they taught me the business and what I feel is the right way. And it's kind of the way that I transitioned to my employees and to my interns now of like, this is how you do business because, because they, you know, like I said, for, for me, I found it been, I found it way more beneficial than saying like, I'm better than this. I'm only going to work at this big company. Working for the small guys taught me how to be better than a lot of the bigger guys in a mm -hmm. weird way, you know? So yeah. hopefully that answers that. So I like I did, I didn't have a uh, inter. I had a lot of different jobs. Um, I was yeah. lucky enough that you know, in New York back then, the music business was making a lot of money, and it was the same thing as that. And because of that, I also ended up knowing what I liked and what I wanted to do and what my talents were good for. Like I was a PR person as one of my first jobs, and I was like, as somebody who um, really doesn't enjoy coaxing people to do things they don't want to do, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> that was not the right job for me. <laughs> so okay. it was okay. like it was good to learn that stuff. And I always say I worked in every aspect of the music business and because I did that instead of just focusing on one I didn't have that classic intern thing of uh where you're like oh I'm not happy I don't know if this is what I want to do it's like I just bounced around until I found one that fit I think most people do that though I, mean, I think at least the people that I think are good at what they do they kind of just take opportunities as they come they don't have you know I wish I could say I had this strategic plan that you yeah. know 16 years ago, I knew I'm going to be exactly where I'm, I'm going to be. Like, I can tell you from now, 16 years ago, living in Nashville, Tennessee, like the cowboy honky-tonk capital of the world was <laughs> not on my to-do list at all. Uh -huh. But also, 16 years ago, I didn't know where I was going to end up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I knew that I was just going to, like, I knew that I was entering a very non-traditional field that didn't have a you know, didn't have a basis of you get out of college, you get this 401k job, you're going to make $60,000 a year. I had learned from a lot of these guys that were running businesses 
that you're going to be fighting and clawing for money everywhere you can, and you got to have, to have your hands on a lot of cookie jars, and you got to find people that you believe in, and you got to balance it a little bit. And uh, you know, by by being around those smaller guys. I don't know. They, they kind of taught me what it was like to how to survive for 16 years. And I, mm. I see a lot of kids that come to Nashville that go to Belmont or MTSU and then they go and, you know, they get an internship at CA and then they get their entry level job and they make minimum wage and, and then they work really hard and they move up the ladder. And I see a lot of those kids also that don't do that, that, that get those entry level jobs or get frustrated that it takes them six months to find a job. And then they just say, screw it, I give up. I'm going to go wait tables and I'm going to go work at an insurance company and then I'll come back to music. And those kids never come back to music. It's always the kids that kind of got slapped in the face a little bit and had a harder time and had to struggle and had to learn to say, I'm not going to have a plan B. I'm going to do this because it, this business will beat the crap out of you and it'll make you just say, I wave the flag. I'm done. Give me something easier. And the people that I know that have become successful as managers or as label executives, sure, there's a couple of people here and there that lucked in and just, you know, the world handed them the platter. Sure. Most of them had a lot of losses before they had their big wins. And the reason they had their big wins is they learned from those losses and they learned from those struggles and they were able to find and attach themselves to bands that had a better trajectory. And also they were able to make wiser decisions about their own career and the careers of others to where those mistakes helped them be better at their job. And I, I'd like to think that a lot of the, the ups and downs in my careers helped me better, better advise people and better be, a, better be a, a better boss at this point than I would have been had I was just handed an entry level job. Right out of college, you know that that was that wasn't my range. So it's it's much better, I think, the way I've done it, at least for me, you know. So I would say this: if you ever get asked to do a college graduation speech, have uh, one of your interns transcribe that because that was really good. <laughs> um, so let's get back though to your trajectory. So yeah. pick up where I left off. Oh, you're good. So yeah, so my junior year, I wanted a big internship, and I I love this company Aware. Like I. I just thought they were doing everything. They, they were releasing music I really liked. They were developing bands the way I thought bands should be developed. And I was just kind of fascinated with it. So I, I remember my junior year, um, I emailed Mark, this guy that worked up there, and said, hey, I'd like to do an internship with you guys this summer. What's the process? He's like, well, you have to fly up here and meet with us. And I was a broke college kid. You know, I was lucky that, that most of my college was paid for through a life scholarship in South mm. Carolina. Um, but... Not, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. My parents weren't necessarily giving me a lot of money to blow to be in college. It was it was pretty. It, you know, we we were we were getting through it. And so I I remember I bought this flight to Chicago on my credit card. Didn't tell my parents. Flew up, skipped some classes that day. Flew up to Chicago. Never been outside of South Carolina really in my life. I'm I'm, I'm small town country kid from South Carolina. Gotcha. Flew to Chicago. Flew to Chicago. Went and met, went to downtown Chicago, met with this company aware in this little house that looked like a frat house um, and went in and the entire time they grilled me like, you work for Hooting the Blowfish's company, like, are you coming here to steal? Like, just kind of busted my balls a little bit about Uh it. And so, so I walked out being like, oh, these guys hate me. Like, I didn't get this. I just wasted all this money. And then a week later they called and said, hey, uh, we loved you and you've been a good job as a rep and if you want to come up here and work for free all week, you're more than welcome to this summer. And so then I was like, oh, my God, I got the best opportunity ever. Oh, crap, I got to tell my parents that I'm not coming home this summer. And, oh, uh, and, and I got to figure out how to pay for this. And so, so I called my mom and said, hey, uh, 
good news, I got an internship this summer. And my mom was used to me like interning in Columbia or Greenville where I was around there, go to school and stuff like that. She's like, that's great. What what little company you work for? I was like, remember that company Aware that sends me all these boxes of stickers and stuff? Like they want me to fly to Chicago. And my mom like got so scared at that moment. And she was like, she told me later, she's like, my child going to Chicago was the most terrifying thing (laughs) ever for me. And so I talked to my parents and, you know, we didn't have a ton of money to just have me go do a backpacking through Europe trip. But she's like, you know, figure it out and, and we'll, we'll help you where we can and stuff like that. And so I, they, they were supportive, but scared. And so I, I moved to Chicago. I lived, I lived in the smallest apartment in the history of the world that in the, in a sketchy neighborhood. And, uh, and I started interning three days a week for free upstairs, which was where their label management component was. And downstairs was their store. And, so I was up there three days a week, and I was always the first kid there, last kid to leave. Loved every aspect of it. And I was making boxes, doing database work, nothing exciting, nothing sexy. And because of that, I was like, well, I'm, I don't have a job up here. And so can I just work downstairs a couple of days when I'm not upstairs? And so they're like, sure. So every day that I would work upstairs, when I got done working upstairs and it closed down, the store would be open until about 9 o'clock. I would go downstairs, and I would help those guys pack boxes until 9 o'clock. And then on my off days from working upstairs in the management and label side, I would work in the store all day just for free. And then by the end of the day, like sometimes the management company guys upstairs would call me upstairs and be like, hey, just come up here and help us out a little bit too. And so I was the kid that was literally like, this was my dream job. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to screw it up. I was going to be here the whole time. So I, w- I lived, breathed, and ate aware in Chicago. So I didn't have my summer in Chicago where I got to go see the bean and, and see <laughs> second city. I was literally working for free and broke and didn't have any money. And so I did that. And I remember like the last day of my internship, it was weird. We used to do these Q and A's with my boss and, uh, and, and Greg, ba- we were basically like every intern had to ask him a couple of questions that they wanted to know after summer working at the internship. And I said, I had found out about his company through the compilations. Like, who are you putting on the compilations this year and what are you really excited about? And he goes, well, there's this kid from Jackson, Mississippi named Owen Beverly that I really love. He's very Jeff Buckley-ish. I think he's going to be huge. He's 19 years old. Something, there's something about him and his voice and what he's making that sounds really cool. Strangely enough, I go home that afternoon after finishing work and I get a call from this guy named Vance McNabb. And Vance was... In my home, in, in the area I went to college at, Vance was kind of a, he's kind of a local celebrity. He was a tour manager for John Mayer. He eventually went on to tour manage Howie Day. He had managed a lot of regional bands. He had had my position previously at Carolina with a concert board like a decade earlier. Huh. And it had brought like widespread panic and a lot of big stuff. that came. So like a lot, I knew who Vance was when he called me, but I didn't know why Vance was calling me because I had never met him before. And uh, he called me, he's like, hey. You, you're going back to Carolina for a last year, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, I've heard about you. I, we have a lot of people, a lot of these guys that like you've interned with, like my buddy Charles Wilkie and Jared Wilkins and Marty Lynch and stuff. They, they had put in a good word for me. He's like, hey, so I'm out with John Mayer right now, but I'm about to transition and I'm about to be a tour manager for this guy named Howie Day, who's on Epic. But I'm also going to start managing bands. And there's this kid from Jackson, Mississippi named Owen Beverly that I'm really fired up about and I'm about to sign to a management deal. I need somebody to be a day-to-day for him and to just kind of help me out here and there. He's like, I can pay you, but it's not a lot of money. And this is the first time anybody said they could pay me any money. So I was stoked. He's like, I'll pay you $150 a week to do this 
from your home. And then when you graduate, we'll start a, we'll start a business together. And I was like, awesome, cool. And so I was stoked. I took the job. A, a lot of stuff started happening for Owen. Like we had a, we had a showcase in New York and a showcase in Charleston, South Carolina, which is where Charleston, South Carolina was like where a lot of bands were getting signed at that point from the Southeast. Mm-hmm. And so we did these big showcases for Owen. And I kid you not, we had in Charleston, we had 23 major record label executives fly out to watch this kid play. I've never wow. seen anything like it. It was more hype than I've ever been attached with since. You know, at the time, it was overwhelming for Owen, I think. I think I think it was just too much for him to take. And uh, the shows didn't go that great. And um, I went from the weeks before everyone calling me and calling Vance and us feeling like we were just sitting on a landmine to the shows happening and then it dissipating. And it was, you know, it was it was it was a great experience of seeing how quickly things can come and how quickly things can go. And so by the time things had started going away from Owen, I was also just like, hey, well, if I'm working with Owen, I'm making some money and I'm going to be working with Vance. Maybe I need to sign some other bands on my side. So I just kind of created a business where I would book a handful of regional bands from the area and I started managing some bands and some of the bands that I started managing signed record contracts. And so it... So can uh, can you go through some of those bands? Yeah, so I, I worked with a band called The Films, who was from Charleston, South Carolina. They ended up signing to Warner Brothers. They one of the so that band is filled with probably four of the most talented people I've ever met that went on to be way more successful than they were when they were in a band. Mm. Um, the lead singer is the male lead singer in the band Shovels and Rope that's on Dual Tone Records uh-huh. right now. The bass player is Jake Sinclair, who's a huge music producer now. Yeah, I did the new Weezer. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He was probably the most musically talented kid I met. Kenny, who played keys and guitar, is Panic at the Disco's guitar player at this point. And the drummer ended up being a huge graphic design guy who dis- who helped do album covers and design for The Fray and a bunch of other people. So that band ended up wow. doing far better after they signed to Warner's and got dropped from Warner's after everybody at the label changed over. So I worked with them. I worked with this band out of Mississippi called King Elementary that got a deal with Capitol, but... It didn't really suffice after that. And then I worked with this girl, Carrie Ann Hurst, who is, is one half of Shovels and Rope as well. She's the female lead in Shovels and Rope. And uh, we actually, I was managing her and the films when they started dating before they got married and started their new band. So, huh. um, and Carrie, Carrie was this beautiful, like, angelic voice from the South that reminded me a lot of Jillian Welch. And we thought she was going to do a deal with Lost Highway and Sugar Hill. And she just wasn't ready. And now I look at her career with Michael and how well I've done as Shovels and Rope. And it's just like, wow, like, it's a great testament to sometimes the timing isn't right, even if the talent's there. And now that the talent's there and the timing's right, they are crushing it. So um, so those are those are some, and then I had a couple other regional bands that were really big regionally, but did not break on a national level. And so I just I had a hodgepodge of bands that I just liked, and I just mm-hmm. you know bands I would sign over going to pizza with them and stuff because I didn't have enough money to buy them a proper dinner. And so they took a chance on me really early. I took a chance on them when they needed help, and our careers kind of just helped merge. So I had this business that I was running. Out of my out of my apartment in Columbia, South Carolina, and then right before I graduated was right when everything started falling apart for Owen. And Owen was kind of like our, like I said, he was the thing we thought was going to really take off. Uh-huh. And so Owen called me two days before I graduated college, and I was already making plans to move to Charleston and all this stuff. And he's like, "Hey, uh, I just want to let you know I fired Vance, and I'm going to go 
back home to Mississippi because I'm just frustrated. I'm going to paint houses for the summer. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like I was just like, I couldn't believe it. So then I was like, crap, I graduate in two days. My entire family's coming up here and I got to tell everybody that I don't have a job and I'm not going to, I don't know what's going to happen. So in those two days, I said, screw it. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. If I fall on my face, I fall on my face. I'll just move home. And so I moved to Charleston. I slept on people's couches. I house sit for another guy in another band that I didn't work with. And eventually I moved in with the band of films that signed to Warner's and just we lived in a house together and they made music and, and I, I booked their shows and helped kind of manage them. And it was it was a fun experience. And I, you know, halfway through that experience, they ended up getting dropped by their label and the other bands that I had were starting to not make the money I needed to make. And I was really kind of going broke. And, and I hadn't heard from Vance since, um, since Owen fired us. And uh, so Vance called me out of the blue one day and said, hey, man. Um, Vance always called me out of the blue <laughs> a lot. Um, but he, he said, hey, uh, so I'm out with Howie Day right now. And we're about to do a summer tour with Dave Matthews Band. And then we're going to co-headline with Gavin DeGraw. This is right when Howie and Gavin had huge like their biggest top 10 singles on the radio. And uh, he said, hey, so he's like, I know things didn't work out with the own stuff. And I know you've been doing your own stuff, but I also know you've, you've hit some hardships with a couple of those bands getting dropped and not making money. He's like, do you want to just come out for the summer and be our merch guy and sell t-shirts? And this is where older me wants to slap younger me in the face because the conversation I had back with Vance was, I was kind of mad at him still, but I was also like, I'm above this. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sell t-shirts for, so I said, I don't know, man, let me think about it. Like, I mean, it doesn't really sound that appealing. And older me is like, you stupid idiot. This is the opportunity. And so <laughs> Vance, Vance was very patient with me. And he called me the next day. He's like, Hey, do you really need to think about this? He's like, I'll pay you 700 bucks a week, which at that point, $700 a week was like making $3 million a day. For yeah, me. So, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, I got it. And so at that point I said, I'll do it. Yeah. Like when do I start? He's like, cool, we're going to, we're going to start the tour here and it'll be three months. And, and then he's like, after this, you know, you can still manage your bands from the road. And after this, you can just go back and have an office and you'll have some money and you can do that thing. So we went on the road with Howie and it was, it was an awesome experience. It was bigger than anything I had ever been a part of. We were doing arenas and amphitheaters with Dave Matthews band. We were doing smaller amphitheaters and house of blues level and theater clubs with Gavin DeGraw. Um, and it was, it was rock and roll, man. It was, it was literally like two buses, a semi, and I showed up and I'm supposed to be doing t-shirts and a weekend of the tour. They're like, Oh, there's so much going on. You got to do more than t-shirts. Like, you know, you got, you got to help settle the shows. I never settled a show in my life. And I was <laughs> settling shows that were arena and amphitheater level and getting, working with, with working with like Aaron Pincus, who was one of the biggest and hardest to work with agents in the world who would yell at me every day. And then I also have to keep up with all the receipts because everybody was focused on making sure how he got the stage, how he did his press, how he did what he had to do. So everything in between got dumped with me. So a week into the tour, I got promoted to be the road manager of the tour at 23 years of age. Oh, wow. And uh, so that was really a trial by fire. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was having to learn quick because I, I learned that if I screwed up too much, people would yell at me and want to kill me. And, and so I didn't screw up that much. And so I did that that summer and it was incredible. And I really liked being on the road at that point. And I was meeting so many people. So when I was on that tour, we passed through Chicago and I went back to aware and just met with everybody on a day off. And one of the guys in the office, his name is Jason Rio. He said, 
hey, when's the Howie thing get up? And at that point, I thought the Howie thing was going to last forever. And uh, I was like, I don't know, man. Like, he seems like he's on a roll. Um, well, after that tour, Howie went to rehab. So <laughs> Jason had mentioned, he's like, we have this been Motion City soundtrack, and they're going to probably need somebody to tour manage, so you should interview for it. So Jason co-managed Motion City soundtrack with this guy, Doug LaFrac, who was also in Chicago, and he managed like Lucky Boy's Confusion and a couple other things. Mm-hmm. So he set me up with an interview with Doug, and I called Doug, and Doug was like, it's funny, I'm so good friends with Doug now, but Doug was so coarse in this, in this call, and he's just like, ah, you don't have enough experience. I can't send you out with this band. This is a big priority band for us. You, you've only done one tour. And he was right, you know, uh-huh. but so I was like, oh, I was bummed. So I, I, got home from, I got home from the Howie tour, and I, I spent a couple of days in Charleston, and then, and then some of Howie's backing band was also in this band called Jump Little Children that was on Atlantic, and they were from the Southeast, and they were going to do like a retirement tour. So they were like, hey, man, like just come out for a couple of weeks right around the airport shuttle with us. You can tour manage us, and then you can also do monitors. I never ran monitors in my entire life. And so I'm the worst monitor guy in the history of the world. And so I, I did that for them for a couple of months. And then when that tour ended, on the last day of that tour, I got a call from Jason Rio while the band's playing the symphony show. And he's like, JT, what are you up to? I was like, oh, we're just playing last day of the tour. I'm getting ready to, you know, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to keep my own business going. I'm going to get an office after this. He's like, no, you're not. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, he's like, Motion City Soundtrack is going to be in Syracuse, New York tomorrow. And our tour manager just had a nervous reaction. He just had a nervous breakdown because he's doing like eight jobs and he needs help. And so you're going to fly to New York tomorrow and you're going to start a Motion City Soundtrack. He's like, truthfully, they're going to probably fire you in a week because they fire every tour manager they've ever had. And, but we need somebody out there. They're on tour with Fall Out Boy. We need somebody out there. I was like, okay. So I got, went to the airport the next morning, flew to Syracuse, New York, met with my first ever punk rock band. Um, my, <laughs> merch girl, my merch girl had green hair. The lead singer had crazy hair out to everywhere. I walk on the bus as this kid from South Carolina with a southern draw with no belt on, my pants sagging, wearing Adidas shoes. And they looked at me like I was the second coming of Satan. So um, they, uh, they told me after the fact, they were like, we were so mad at our management for sending us this hillbilly to kind of come <laughs> with thing. And, uh, but the thing with Motion City is because I wasn't from that scene and that scene is very bro-y and like a lot of friends tour i was walking into this saying they're gonna probably fire me anyway but i'm gonna work my butt off to show them that i can do a better job and it worked out Mm -hmm. and i didn't get fired and i worked for that band for about a year and a half after that we traveled all over the world i worked on their commit this to memory record cycle which is the biggest record they ever had Mm -hmm. Um, I became really engulfed in it. And so by the end of that tour, we were on tour with the All-American Rejects, which was the last tour of the cycle before they went to make a record. I had I had been staying in touch. I was close with Gavin DeGraw's camp, and Gavin DeGraw's camp wanted to steal me to come be the road manager for Gavin and make a lot of money. And Jason Rio and Greg Latterman and Steve Smith and Mark Cunningham from Aware called me and said, hey, JT, we know you've done a good job in Motion City. We've been following it because they're one of our management clients. We're in a position right now where we need a younger guy to come into the company and work on our management team. And uh, we're wondering if you'd like to get off the road and do this. And I had been, I was tired. I was, I was done with the road. It was not, I was always wanting to do management. Tour management was kind of a, a segue to that, but it wasn't something I wanted to be a 60-year-old lifer crew guy. And so I thought, I didn't wise move. (laughs) Yeah. One of the stupid things I didn't do that I look back now is I didn't ask about how much money it was going to be. 
And so I just, I blindly said, that's my dream. Yeah, I will, I will be there. When do I start? And they're like, and the tour, and then we had holiday shows from Motion City ended right before Christmas. They're like, first week of January. I was like, sweet. So I literally moved to Chicago, moved in with a friend, slept on an air mattress. I had no money. I mean, I, I had, for years, I'd, when I was home, I didn't have enough money. So I'd basically cheese toast off paper plates that I would recycle and use again because I couldn't afford paper plates or <laughs> anything more than cheese toast. And so I was broke and I moved to Chicago, made crap money. But when I, when I walked in, they weren't kidding. They needed somebody young and they surrounded me with a lot of people that had a ton of experience and were there to help me grow. And, you know, we, some of the first things I ended up working with were the fray who were selling, who started selling millions of records, Matt Carney, who started selling millions of records. Um, and, and so I, I was put in these situations where we were, we were signing these bands and building these bands and it was everything that I wanted to do. And, you know, I ended up working for aware for almost nine years. I ended up becoming the overall vice president of the entire company. We built a management roster that had everything from, like I said, the fray, Matt Carney, Brandy Carlisle, Jack's Mannequin, Michelle Branch, Five for Fighting. I mean, you name it. We worked with a lot of, we were a small company of, I think at a height, eight people at the smallest four people. And we were, we had a multi-million dollar business with the clients were winning Grammys and winning awards and on TV and selling tons of records. And it was a great overall learning experience to learn from a guy like Greg, who was my mentor through this whole thing, learn from a guy like Jason Rhea, who taught me everything that you could ever think about knowing in management. Learn from a guy like Steve Smith who taught me so much about client relationships and and just how to kind of have an overall vibe with a client. And learn from a guy like Mark Cunningham who had a great artist development, marketing mind as well. I was I was really kind of blessed in that situation to spend my my mid twenties to my early thirties surrounded by the people that as I was wanting to get into music, what we're building a company that inspired me to work in music. And as I got to be a part of the company, we're having its big, biggest success and really achieving stuff. So it was, it was a great time in my life. And so I did, that for, I did that for close to nine years. And then about a year before I left Aware, I had a conversation with Greg, who was the owner of the company, and just said, man, like, I had, uh, in that time, I had moved to Nashville to start our Nashville office because I wanted to be closer to my family, and I also was sick of Chicago and the cold of Chicago. I, I understand. <laughs> and so I called Greg and said, hey, man, like we're in a good place as a company right now, but right now I feel like I need a different challenge, and I never thought I'd have the conversation with you that I, I need to leave the company, but my gut's telling me I've got to do something else. And I was like, I want to make it clear I'm not – trying to go to Vector or Red Light or some big company and take all my clients and cash in. I always wanted to have my own management company. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the means when I was younger to really do it the way I want to. Now I've got a book of business and a reputation and a client base because of the opportunities you gave me. I want to start something of my own to see if I can do it. And if I fall on my face, like we can figure that out later. And Greg at the time, you know, he he was he's been he had been doing music for over 20 years and he had made his money and and he had helped a lot of people become very successful. And, and Greg is always a very positive person, a very supportive person. He was like, JT, you need to do what you need to do. He's like, but here's the thing. He's like, don't do it right now. And this was great advice because at that point I was like, I'm just going to do it right now so it doesn't affect everybody and it'll be a clean break. And he's like, he's like, stay here for another year. He's like, we'll wind down our deal with Republic. We have a Matt Carney record that's going to come out. We should do that one together. 
he's like, and it'll allow you time to save up money so that when you start a business, you have cash flow and you have time to get everything LLC. You have time to figure out the right name. You have time to hire someone to do PR for your press release. If you need to, you have time to find the right accountants. He's like, it'll allow a natural transition for you. It'll help me to keep income coming into the business for this next year and not have it be a sudden thing that feels like it's a bad thing. He was, it was incredibly wise advice. Wow. And so, so I stayed around at Aware for another year. And then by the time I broke off, everything that he told me would happen, happened. I had saved up cash flow to be able to start a business and not have to have investors or take loans out. I had come up with a name that I liked. I had, I had incorporated. I had found my accountant. I had found my lawyer. I had found everybody. And so when I, when I departed, it wasn't this rash surprise. It was more of just like the natural evolution of where things were going. And Greg to this day is still a very close advisor and friend and someone that I think did not have to offer me that opportunity. And he did. And so I am, I'm pretty grateful for that. And so after that, we started workshop and, uh, so I took my remaining client from clients from where and so, so, said, okay, so who was that? Yeah. So at the time it was Mayday Parade, it was Matt Carney, who I co-managed with Greg still. And and then it was I had a girl named Emily Hearn who was from Georgia who I had I had discovered and developed and we were putting out records for her and she had created a big sync business. It was Marie Miller who was on Curb Records. I had just signed Chad Copeland, who's this producer out of Oklahoma, yep. who had who's been done, on the podcast. Yeah, Chad's great, and he's done Sufjan and Broncho and every other person that's way cooler than what I listen to. He's <laughs> and I, I believe that might have been it. I may have had one or two more that I worked with at the time. So I took them with me, and so that gave me a nest egg to start a business on. And luckily, the timing of me leaving was the start of Mayday Parade's Black Lines record cycle. So I knew I was going to have cash flow. I knew they were going to be busy. And Matt was also in the middle of his record cycle for Just Kids. So we were in a good spot, and all my other stuff was developing. And so I started Workshop, and we were like, we're going to find some other stuff. And we reattached to Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket, who we had managed mm-hmm. At Aware, who's a great songwriter in town. With Chad, I helped. We, we kind of discussed like kind of having Sam Hollander. I always had a lot of respect for because Sam would help kind of create these bands like We the Kings and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And Chad's such a great, he's just such an incredible talent and has such an ear for music and such a great vibe and relationship with clients that we kind of had the conversation of like, you can be a producer and be very busy, but you could also have some of these side hustles. I was like, why don't you start a sync business? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, you should create a catalog of you creating these fake bands with all these musicians around Oklahoma that you that have a great voice, but that nobody knows. You can program it, you can record it, and then you'll own the master and you'll own the publishing of it. And we can put them out on MusicBed or get a music supervisor to kind of help sync it. And now Chad is, Chad's, producer schedule is slammed to mm-hmm. the roof every month to where we barely have room when anything cool comes in. And at the same time, he's also making all these sync projects that generate tons of money for him and are, you know, in Jeep commercials and in TV and like wow. we have placement in elementary and like, so like he's now got another aspect of his business that's monetizing. We, we parted with Emily Hearn because she, she wanted to take a break from touring. Mm-hmm. Um, Marie Miller was working on a record with Curb, which will come out this spring. Mayday Parade had a great cycle for Black Lines yep. and is going to be doing the Alessa Romantics 10-year tour, which is going to be huge this year. And you know we signed we, I, I hired a new person to be a day-to-day for our office who ended up helping us sign this band from 
the UK called Milestones that signed to Fearless Records. Very cool. And so I've, I've kind of got a younger person in the office that's kind of doing what I was doing at Aware nine years ago of mm-hmm. having fresh ears and coming in and bringing in bands. And, and that's been fun. And so we did that. I, so our roster continues to grow. We continue to try to add new things to it. And we've also we have a sponsorship division where I've done deals for our bands and other bands for everywhere from like we did, made a music sampler for Denny's for their college restaurants mm-hmm. where we did that. We did deals with... Hilton, where we created a wine experience for the wine brand that we represent. Um, we, I mean, you name it, we've worked with everyone from Wolverine Boots to Aloft Hotels to, I mean, just you name it, it's, it's a lot. Of, so that's been a separate side of our business to make some additional income. And, you know, the core of it, Workshop, you know, when I came up with the name, it was naming a business. I, there's a lot of things they don't tell you about running a business. Yep. One of them is you get taxed way more than you should ever want to pay taxes. <laughs> The second is coming up with a name that someone doesn't have that also fits the mantra of what you want to do yeah. is the hardest thing in the history of the world. And for so for about nine months ad, after I talked to Greg about wanting to leave, I tormented myself about this name. It had to be something impactful. The thing I loved about Aware was it was so simple. It was, yeah, you know, it's a great we're name. a company that builds awareness about new artists that nobody knows. Genius. Mm-hmm. But in 2000... <laughs> You know, in 2015, coming up with a name that simple is impossible because yeah. every domain is taken. So with Workshop, Workshop was always something that was crossed off. It was always on my list, but I was like, I don't know about that. And when it came down to it, I, I, had, a, I had a meeting with a friend after I was just like, I, dude, I, I'm beating my head against the wall. I have no clue what to name this stupid company. And they were, we went through the list and I'm like, what? You have Workshop written on all these things. What about, I was like, yeah, I'm thinking maybe that's like a second name, like, something workshop, but, you know, but I also wanted to have a management side because all the businesses I ever loved weren't just like something so-and-so music. It was so-and-so management. I want to be defined about who we are. And they're like, why don't you just put them together? Like, tell me why you like this. And then I said, well, I like the idea of calling it workshop because I've always worked for small boutique companies. And a workshop is kind of a small factory that gets stuff done. And it's a place where you build, you, you create, you build, and you repair stuff. Mm, and I was like, that's, I like that's that. That's kind of, really good. I was like, that's what I want to do with artists. I want to, I want to find new things that we build from scratch. I want to, I want to be able to sign existing things that had a bad experience with management and help them build upon what they had or, or rebuild some of the things they had. And I want to find artists that I loved that may have had some either bad choices or bad people surrounding them or bad circumstance. I want to help repair or get them back to where they were and further above than that. I was like, that's my goal. And so that was kind of the aha moment that it just stuck. Mm. And so we went with it. And, uh, you know, so now we're about a year and a half in. Um, I think, you know, I think before making the decision to leave, it was the scariest thing I'd ever did because I was like, everyone around me was like, dude, you have a good book of business. Just go merge with Vector or Red Light or Network or somebody big. Mm. And I took some of those meetings and some of those meetings were good and some of those people were douchebags. So, I mean, like at the end of the day, I knew that like the culture of what I wanted to create was not into doing that. It was like, I want to create something like my boss did. And I want to, I want to do something that's unique to me and that I can work with whatever I want to work with. And nobody's worried about P and L's. It's kind of my passion project. So this has kind of been my art. And so, um, I'm so happy I did it. The freedom I have at my job now is amazing. The clients I get to work with are really inspiring. And, you know, as a small company, the only one that gets to tell me what I can't do and what we can do is me. 
So, mm-hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's been cool. And I also like, I've had a lot of kids that have interned for me over the years that are going on to have success. So that's a fun thing too, to watch all the kids that we kind of call them apprentices with the workshop name, but like mm. all the kids that kind of came through our doors over the years, seeing them work at Interscope or Red Light or Vector, or all these other places and having their career trajectory go up. You know, I, I think my role in business over the years has been going from being that small kid that knew nothing about this, that everybody helped out to now being that, that, that mid thirties guy that is a little outspoken and has had some great experience and how a lot of people support him find ways to help other young people be successful. So, so that's, that's the longest version of my story. <laughs> so sorry if I wasted too much time. No, that's that's kind of, that's me and that's what we've done and that's what we're building. So I'm happy to answer anything. <laughs> okay. Shut uh, up for a second. So yeah, go for it. <laughs> so you talked a lot about some of these projects you've done with corporations. Uh, yeah. What does that look like? How do those usually come to manifest on an average case basis? Where are the core? Totally. So when I was at Aware, I kind of got involved in the tour sponsorship side because nobody was doing it on our business. And so we did everything from the Freight at a Honda Civic tour and stuff like that. So I, I started getting to know creative directors at these at various companies. And so I kind of created a pitch of like very cold call. Hey, we have a baby band and they wear Nikes. Can we get some free Nikes? Because they'll... Mm they'll tweet about it and they'll love their Nikes. And so I treated branding as if people treated sync 15 years ago. It was, it was a thing that existed, but nobody really paid attention to and nobody really thought there was any money in it. But I felt it would be a good way for a, every band likes free stuff. I've never met a band that doesn't like free stuff. And if you (laughs) send free stuff that they wear already, they're even more happy to have you as their manager because not only are you just working on the thing you're going to make 15 to 20% off of, you're getting them free stuff that they don't have to spend money on and they'll wear all the time and it creates a brand awareness. Mm-hmm. When I would show this to the people that sent us free shoes or free hats or free clothes or free everything from socks to cologne to everything, they would be stoked that these artists would post on Instagram or Twitter and tag them and it became a very natural, supportive way to not feel spammy, all that type of stuff. So, that became a that became the gifting part of our company, which we do so much of and literally send a questionnaire to every artist we ever work with about what do you like and we'll get you everything you like for free. Hmm. That was one of it. By doing that, we started developing deeper relationships with certain companies and also with advertising agencies that were just like, Hey, we work with twenty different clients and we notice your band has a big social media following, or we notice like when we do a targeted thing, the return's huge. So we found ways to kind of monetize everything from posting stuff to wrapping tour buses to tour, tour sponsorships to we just did a deal with Twix last year with Mayday Parade where it was the coolest thing I ever did. And we worked with this advertising agency that was a new startup. And basically Twix gave us a ton of money, a ton of like they gave us a ton of product. And they said, we want to come and interview your band at a college show when you're going to be bored as hell that day. And we'll we'll video the thing and just let them talk about their band and how their band started. And they can, we, they can have a Twix at the start of the thing and it won't be spammy. They gave us money. They put the band's image on all Twix boxes in Walmarts all across huh. the country. They bought, they bought hundreds of thousands of dollars of radio ads for you know the band's single at the time. And they said, hey, this is Derek from Mayday Parade. And they played it on the rock and pop stations and mark and key markets we needed when we weren't getting radio play. So we kind of were getting huh. we were getting sixty seconds of airplay for free in all these markets. So and I think that has helped build their touring business even further. That was a great deal. Um, 
But I also like had been attached to like, you know, my bands have done the AP tour, they've done the VH1 You Ought to Know tour. And so I became kind of an advisor on some of these tours of like, no, this is how we need to do it. And this is how we should do some of the sponsorship. And this is how we should do it. So it's not super lame to the band or the fans or feels cheesy. So we do that. And I've been lucky that some of our relationships came from the labels we work with. Some of them came from a cold call that an intern made. Some of them came from a relationship I had. It's it's all been varying things, but I felt the part of doing the sponsorship side was we're already doing it anyway, so we might as well market it to our bands and everybody else that we do this. And so now the goal with 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 projects, which is what we call our sponsorship division, is to create a side business that either can be a retainer-based business or it can be a commission-based business and try to get in bed with a lot of festivals with labels and say like, if you don't have a branding person, which unless you're a major label, most of them don't, we can, we can do the service for less money than you can probably pay a full-time person to do it. We have the experience and we already can plug you into a lot of stuff. And we've even also talked to a lot of management companies about like, hey, you're a small management company like us. I'm sure you don't have time to do all the sponsorship stuff that's starting to become more and more prevalent. You focus on your bands. We can spend a couple hours a week focusing on this, and hopefully it becomes a return for us. So we're trying to create a model that makes sense. And in the, in the meantime, also, like we're, we're doing a, a merchandise line of dinosaur T-shirts for mm-hmm. one of the guys from Friday Parade. We started a wine business with a company called J.W. Thomas, which is a kind of a partnership of Peju Wines in Napa that Matt Carney did. And we were able to get it exclusively distributed at Whole Foods, which oh, has wow. never happened for a brand new nothing wine brand that didn't exist. You know, we've plugged ourselves in the Hilton deal came from that, too. We wanted to create a fan experience on tour. And we, we said, we'll do it, but we have to tie in the a dinner where the wine's poured in a video and Live Nation did a huge thing with us. It's a fun way for us to use our brain in a different way other than Ben goes on tour, order t-shirts, make sure commissions are cut and make sure people get paid. It's a way for us to kind of think of music in a different way and see if there's a way for our artists or other artists that we feel make sense to plug them with the brands that get their audience that's probably listening to their band but not necessarily and kind of make it into a bigger overall campaign that everyone benefits from and that we hopefully get a check out of as well. So so Projects has been a lot of fun and it's Projects is definitely a work in progress and, and it's baby steps. But my hope is that within five years, we're making just as much money, if not more money off the project side to where we have a full-time team that can work on that. Um, and it's, it's just it's a compliment to our management business because when you run a management company and everything is commission based, yep. it is scary every month if you're going to make your your nut every month. And so knowing that you can have this ancillary income coming in and create a different side of your business, I think is a smart way to look at business because it allows us to not overextend ourselves, but just do what we're naturally good at and monetize it. So that's the hope. Okay. So you have all these apprentices. What's the thing that they don't usually understand that is a job skill that you need for what you do each day that oftentimes they kind of get blindsided by that. They didn't know they needed to know. Uh, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, it, it's sometimes people think I treat the apprentices and the internships like it's a sweatshop in a way because mm-hmm. I have pretty high expectations. I think the thing when you work with young people is they all have ideas, but they haven't necessarily 
been in a system that's a helped complement their ideas or allowed them to realize that they aren't the smartest person in the room sometime. That's that, I think that's a really, really mature perspective on that. Yeah. So I, I think most of the, the thing that makes a good intern or an apprentice in our case is a kid that has really good due diligence, that is attentive to detail, that I, that I know that if I give them a project, it's weird. They're going to feel more guilty if they don't do it right than I am if they screw it up. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's kind of that, that, that responsibility and that acceptance that they have of like, I'm getting an opportunity here. I got to make the most of it. The kids that excel at that go on to do way bigger stuff than I will ever do in my career. And I, I'm very proud of a lot. Like I've had a kid that, that came in that I had known forever. He was actually in a band of mine that was on Epitaph for a second. He's older at this point. And he came in and he interned for us. And he told me, he's like, hey, I'm 29 years old. I don't, I don't need to be interning, but I, mm-hmm. I want to just see what it's like to come through here. And by the time he finished his internship, he was always a great, he had a great mind for music. And I, I could see him being a song plugger, a music supervisor. And by the time he left, he got hired to be Florida Georgia Lines Publishing Company's creative director. Wow. And He's killing it right now. And we're not a country company at all. Mm-hmm. So that was him. I, you know, I've had people, I've had people that have come in here that have gone on to be agent assistants or agents. I've had people that have gone through publishing. And the thing you notice about all of them is they have a passion for something and they're just waiting for somebody to help them turn that extra knob to figure it out. And some of it's, some of it's fear. Some of it's coming from families that tell them like, you need to do something traditional and it, they're scared because they've never done anything like this. And they can look at me and say, we can talk to Josh because Josh has never made a resume in his entire life. I can't mm-hmm. tell, I cannot help anyone with an interview process at all because I've never made a resume and I've never done a formal job interview. That's funny. So I, I'm, I'm rare in that sense. But the thing I think people get from me, at least I like to think they get it from me, maybe they don't, but that I like to think people get from me is like, I'm not afraid of anything, you know, like, and, and I, I've, I've done a lot of stuff and I've been in their shoes and I've been in the place they're going to be. And I can tell them what I screwed up and what I, what I wish I'd have done differently. And I can also tell them what I did that didn't seem like the most sane thing at the time that ended up being a great experience. So I hope that I, I can provide some kind of inspiration for them because that these young kids that come through our office, they're a reflection of my office. When they go out and they're at bars at night and stuff like that, and they're listening to bands and they're bringing stuff in, they're listening to stuff and they're hearing stuff and they're wanting to get attached to stuff that I'm not listening to because it's not my thing, but that can be the future of my business. And so I, I'm very, I'm very ingrained in these young kids having a voice here, being involved. Like when they come to work for me, I'm not here to say, get me coffee. I don't drink coffee anyway, Mm. but get me coffee, make me copies and take out the trash. They do all of those things, but at the same time, they also are involved in social media for our bands, working on our band's calendars, which we treat like the Bible because everything's in them. So I have to trust these kids to not screw that up. I have to trust them to meet with our bands. They send social analytics out to our bands. They're involved in everything. So they're seeing inside the business from the ground up everything that it takes to develop and build and take a band to the next level. And I hope that by the time they leave here and they hear me swear on the telephone and say crazy stuff and, <laughs> and all that stuff, by the time they leave here, they are more prepared for that first job than any of their peers are. And I think when they do an interview and they have that confidence and they have, when, they're, when they're, their future employer says, what'd you do at your last internship? I think there's a, I think as an employer, you're used to hearing kids say, 
well, I made copies and I did this. And you hear all the, all the BS remarks that people give in an interview. These kids can walk in those interviews and say, I did this, 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 and this. And by doing this, 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 and this, it helped this band grow. It helped the company get bigger. So they're a big part of our business, even though they're unpaid internships and in a lot of things. Like I, I have so much passion about these kids because, you know, as they go on and have success in their career, I'm a part of their story and they're a part of my story. And so wow, that's I think a great way any, to look at it. That any young kid that comes in here, you know, can be naive because they've never done it before. You shouldn't expect a kid that's working for free to have all the answers because otherwise they should be getting paid. So that's what an internship is for is to learn the ropes, learn the business, and hopefully be able to better the business by you being. And if, if in 15 years from now, a lot of the kids that came through our doors are high ranking executives, I like to think that's my small contribution into the business being a better business than it was when I got started. So yeah. That- that's a really rad way to look at it. I'm uh, really impressed. That's that's very mature. What are some tools that people may not be using or apps or anything that really help you get all this done? We use Planoli right now for hmm. a lot of our social media I, stuff. I, I have no idea what that is. So could, if you could explain, I'd love to know. I'd love to explain it to you, but I don't really know a lot of what it is. <laughs> um, that, again, this is the perk of having a phenomenal day-to-day in my office and also having really good interns. Is This is a site they found that helps you organize like posting schedules and being able to literally look on a calendar of what your social media and your Instagram can look like if it's done in a schedule instead of just done instantly that day. And it helps time out stuff so that we're not like every day having to think of a new idea. We have our social media planned out months in advance. And if we need to take a turn, we can do that. So huh. that, that part's really cool. As far as it's tough with apps, there's a lot of things. I, I love a company in Texas called The Music Bed, which is like a licensing company that does wedding videographer syncs, but also does smaller advertising niche kind of syncs and stuff mm. like that. They've become a company that for a lot of our artists, Chad and Emily Herner we used to work with, they have generated so much money that is unfound, like nonprofit money that no major publisher goes after. They, they've helped some of our businesses, some of our bands go from being tiny artists to make $100 a show to being six-figure sync businesses every year. And so they've been a phenomenal asset that I've worked with. Um, there's a company called Music Audience Exchange in Dallas, Texas that does that. Do, like they help us do the Twix campaign and stuff like that. They they do a lot of marketing and, and viral advertising and stuff like that. They're a new startup company that I think is on the verge of being a multi 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 million dollar company if they're not already. So they're cool. They're, they're, there's a buddy of mine who's developing an app right now that I think he's going to sell the TuneCore that will help you calculate your royalties and your songwriter splits and stuff like that for an independent artist. Because when you're an independent artist, how do you know how to pay out for songwriting splits or sure, yeah. it's on a record? He's created a day. De- he hasn't fixed it yet, but he's, he's really close to creating this app that I think he could sell to TuneCore that will make the entire business of being a songwriter It'll make it more appealing to be a songwriter to write with independent artists because you can actually get paid off of it. And stuff. Huh. So, is, is this like a blockchain thing? or uh, explain? I don't know exactly what that is. Sorry. Blockchain's yeah. kind of like the new thing everybody's talking about is that what there's going to be embedded in everything is like kind of like a royalty distribution thing so that let's say Spotify plays your song. It automatically knows who to send the money instead of you sending it to this person and they pay that person, they pay that person. It just automatically goes to all the right people without having it drilled down down to uh, the major label gets paid, then they send it to the manager, and then the manager cuts yeah, three yeah. checks to these people. It's just like you can input the technology, input into it what happens on each thing. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a similar hope he has, and I think it's it's more it's more for the artist that has no team. It's more for gotcha. the artist that doesn't have an accountant, a lawyer. It's for that small kid in Nebraska that wrote a really cool record that a couple people are streaming and is making a couple thousand bucks a month for him to be able to say, well, I wrote this song with my buddy and then I had a mixer do it and he gets one point on it. How do I do this to where it calculates, it sends a proper statement just like a major label would on anything and everybody feels like the accounting's done properly, it's there and everybody can get paid out. So when I get my TuneCore payment, it's just like getting taxes taken out of your check. It's reduced, it's moved out, it's sent out. And at the end of the year, I know all my money's paid out and I don't have to worry about it. Because so many bands Very cool. do this where they have thousands of dollars in TuneCore. They never pay anybody. And then people are hunting them down and these kids just stop responding because they don't know what to do it. So, yep. um, so my buddy's kind of creating that. And, you know, like there's, you know, I think there's a cool label services company. There's a company called Good Time that does a lot of label services for independent artists. There's, you know, Sean Fowler in Nashville has a, has a thing that works kind of with like Spotify playlisting and stuff like that. So there's, there's a lot of, this is an exciting time, like as crappy as it is sometimes to be in music, because the money's not where it was back when Van Halen was huge. Sure, like, sure. It's an, ex, it's an exciting time because people like, people like me and my peers can get in here and do things a little differently and find a way to make money and find a way for everything to benefit an artist in a way that hasn't been thought of before. That's more, that makes more sense. And it makes more sense for like kind of that, that middle of the road artist that's struggling to get by that could just be a step away from going it gives them the tools that for years were only available at major record labels or major management companies or were heavily expensive services it makes it a more affordable option to be a working class musician today so i like um, that yeah so you've been with a lot of bands at the start of their career what's some advice you have about breaking a band and getting them a fan base any band that i've ever and again i don't work in hip-hop or super pop so mm-hmm. maybe I'm different but every band i've ever seen that's gone on to be successful had an engaging live show and could have a connection with the fans i think the biggest thing that bands screw up on is getting in their head too much and so a lot of the bands that we've worked with that have gone on to have success had a vision for what they wanted at the start, and it grew over time, and their expectations became higher over time because of that in a good way. But at the start of it, if you put them in the room with 30 people, they played like they were playing to 100,000 people, and they, they were true to themselves, and they had a mission, and they didn't get distracted by, well, my best friend thinks that this band's cool, so i got to sound like this band, or i got to write a song like this because it'll get me on the radio, and then I'll be rich. It mm-hmm. came from the place of being a, a true artist of like, you know, like this is special to me and I feel like this could attach to people and I want to meet those kids after the show and I want to have that experience with them and I want them to, I want to be that artist that they remember from their college days or whatever. The artists we've had like that, they're a who's who of the roster, I think, that we've had that have gone on to be that successful. Um, and the ones that haven't worked were the ones that needed to really get their mental health in a good place, which I think mm. is the scariest part about music is you're, you're told that you get one shot and it's all screwed up. If you don't do everything the way somebody else that's more important than you tells you to do it. I think an artist needs to believe that they are the most important freaking person in the room. And if they don't believe that, then why the hell would anybody want to work for them and base their careers around them? And so that's a great point. I, I love artists that are unapologetic about how they feel. And I fight with artists a lot of times that are unapologetic about how they feel. But, but they, they're the ones that inspire me to do this, and they're the ones that I think help these other artists that are coming up 
have a vision of like, well, he did this and he did this his way or she did this and she did this her way. And that, that makes me believe I can do it. I think the biggest, that, that, the, that's been the common of every band that's been successful. And I think the common of every band that I've worked with, it either didn't work because either those kids had talents that were in different areas and their band was just kind of like their college period and they needed to go on to do something after that, mm-hmm. or they didn't have the commitment to do it. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a big thing with bands sometimes is they get into it because they like playing music or they want to hit on chicks and it's an <laughs> easy outlet for that. But when it comes down to we got to be in a van 300 days a year and sleep on the floor and play for 40 people and make 15 bucks a night in merch. Most of them do not want to do that. Most of them want to open for you too and be able to tell their mom and dad, I signed this big record contract and tell their friends that they got validation to go on a tour and they got drunk with Dave Matthews. Most of them want to do that. Mm-hmm. And everyone wants to do that. Everyone wants to hit on a playmate. Everyone wants to do, but, but the ones that can find peace and joy out of like the small victories and the develop, uh, I always tell our artists like, this is not a goal for you to go zero to a hundred, stick on the wall and be huge. Our goal is for every year, your career to progress and go upwards. Mm-hmm. Because because careers are going to have hills and valleys, but if you can always feel like there's a progression, you're going to want to keep doing this and you're going to see value in it. If you go and have a hit single on your first record, you're always going to be trying to chase that next single to get you back to where you are. And you're probably going to make art that's not going to connect to people or is going to be special to you. And you're going to end up resenting this and hating this. And 10 years from now, you're going to be that grumpy guy that's telling all these local bands, well, the business screws you. And, you're, and, and you don't want to be that guy because yeah. that sucks. You know? So, um, so... Yeah, I, I think just like working with young people's interns, working with young bands, you see a lot of people that are talented in ways that you'll never be talented in. And your only hope is you help advise them through tough decisions and let them make choices that make sense for them at that moment. And it's really up to them. And it's also up to the music and also a lot of variables like who they sign with, what agent they have, what opportunities that come in. It's not as easy as like, if it was as easy as like, we sign this band and we get this agent and we get these tours and everything works out. I'd be a millionaire and I wouldn't be talking mm-hmm. to I'd be living in the Bahamas and surfing every day. But but it, it is about kind of creating a path, just like if you're a small local hardware store, mm-hmm. you want to create a small business that eventually grows to be Ace Hardware, that mm-hmm. eventually grows to become Walmart, and eventually be, you know, becomes the biggest thing in the world. And if you can do that, you can make a living for yourself, you can create the art you want to do, and you can create an audience that keeps coming back for more and keeps growing because they keep telling people and more people discover you in different ways. And so that's how I look at developing artists and how they can go on and have success. So. I, th- I think that's a great, uh, that's, that's a great way to put it with the commitment thing. Cause like I, I, you know, you think about the level of commitment that the 99% of bands have, which is that they can't even be bothered to think of how to promote their record past putting it out and making one video or totally. releasing a single, like the commitment to, Four weeks of steady promotion is too much to ask every two years for the majority of bands, never mind the level you're talking about. Yeah. Well, it's hard to, you can't, I, I've learned this over time because I get frustrated with people just like anybody else says. Yeah. You, can't, you can't get mad at the kid for wanting that instant like feeling of goodness mm-hmm. or like the inst- because that's the culture we live in right now. Yep. You have to kind of train them that like, I, I've, always, I've always told this, like one of the things I, I do, there's two ways that I decide that I want to work with a client. Well, three, I got to like the music, that's first, but that's kind of secondary, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. I have to feel like if I sit down with this person, I can have dinner with them and my family and feel like this is a person I trust and that I, that I, that I love. And it's just like dating that you, mm-hmm. that you want to have around you. And thirdly, and this is the hardest one, I got to feel like if I walked up to this kid and he's playing guitar, that if I took his guitar away 
and I smashed it on the ground and said, you can never play guitar again, the kid would crumble. Because the mm. kids that will crumble need music. It's an yep. out for them. And those kids are going to be successful whether you're with them or somebody else is with them. They're going to find a way to do it. The mm. kid that if you took his guitar and you smashed it and said, eh, I'll go play Nintendo, that kid's not going to become successful because that kid's not going to put the work into it. And as a manager, you're going to work your butt off to create all these opportunities for these kids. And if that kid's not going to work harder than you are, screw that kid because that kid's not going to be worth working for for 10 years. That kid's going to do it for six months to a year. And when all of his hopes and dreams don't instantly happen, they're going to fire you. They're going to break up. They're not going to do this. And they're going to be working at Guitar Center. And I don't like to work with kids that just end up working at Guitar Center, to be honest. So, yeah. Uh, right there with you. Yet again, <laughs> very well put. So, self-promote. What's going on? Yeah. Um, like I said, we're, we're a small business. It's growing. We're meeting with a lot of clients right now. Chad Copeland's schedule is busy. We're booking up stuff all the time, everything from mixing, engineering to producing. His sync business, he is he just signed a deal with Position. He's going to create a, a sync oh, project for nice. them. Nice. I, I, I do a bunch of work for them as well. I love those guys. And yeah. we've, I've been talking to Chappelle forever, and we've been wanting to find something to work on. And you know, we were able to do kind of a one-off deal with Chad to where he can create these projects, give to them to pitch. He has a lot of stuff on MusicBed. He has a band called Layup that we, we also manage that's mostly a sync thing with with Chris Henderson from Broadens Radio Return. Oh, nice. Huge. Chad's one of those that I, I've always, I told Chad when I first met him, because I, I hadn't really worked with a producer before. I said, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but there's something about you that I feel like you're one record away from being a producer that everybody wants to work with. Mm. And I feel like this is the year he's going to get that record. So nice. he's, he's tremendous. He, he's been a blessing to me in so many ways of, you know, he gives me a different side of my brain to work on. And he's just a quality human being that is cooler than 90% of the bands he goes in with, so they end up loving for that. <laughs> Glenn Phillips is touring this year. He's supporting his record, Swallowed by the New, that just came out in October. He, you know, he's the lead singer of Toad the Wet Sprocket. We're, okay. we're working on his solo career, and he's also a songwriter. He, he's splitting time between California and Nashville right now, doing a lot of songwriting for both country and pop stuff as well. He, like I said, I'm Glenn... Glenn was a, was a high school favorite of mine in Toad the Wet Sprocket, so to be able to work with Glenn now is, is, is really empowering to me. We have Marie Miller, who's on Curb Records. We worked with Marie for about two years now. She had two songs that were on Sirius called Six Foot Two and You're Not Alone that were played the hell out of on Sirius a couple years ago, and we signed her right around that time. She kind of went dark for a little bit to make a new record. She made a tremendous pop record. She made it with... Chad Copeland and also with Eric Ross, who did all the Mary Lambert, Sarah Bareilles, mm. um, Ann and Alec records. She kind of reminds me of if Michelle Branch met Ingrid Michaelson and could play the hell out of a mandolin, huh. that's, that's Marie Miller. And so I, she's one that curbs a country label. She's the only pop thing on curb. She's kind of a tweener. She's, I think she's a badass. Um, I think she's incredible. And she's one of those women that um, really speaks her mind, knows what she wants is incredibly passionate, um, and she's one of those kids that if I took her mandolin or her guitar away from her, she'd crumble. And so I, I feel really good about her. Milestones is the, new, is the newest band we have. They're signed to Fearless. They are, at this very moment, tracking their, their, their debut record for Fearless. They put an EP out in July. They've done some spot tours in the UK. They are going out at the end of this month with, with confidence in the UK and Europe, they are going to be the support act for Mayday Parade's A Lesson in Romantics tour. 
and coming to the U.S. for the first time. So that's going to be exciting to actually meet these kids. This is the first band I've ever managed that I've never physically met in person before. Wow, that's funny. So we're really excited about them. They, you know, they are very you me at six meets mm. Jimmy Eat World um, kind of vibe to it. I think the lead singer is a star. I think they write incredible songs. They're young. They're like 18, 19, 20. So they're super young. It's the first time I worked with a young band like this in a long time, but there's a, the labels really fired up about them. They have great agents. We're getting good tours. And I think they're, you know, they're probably one or two records away from hopefully being that next big band in pop punk that can mm. kind of change things. So I feel good about them. And then, Mayday Parades are a staple. They're our flagship, and they're they're the band that I've worked with for going on six years now. They this coming 2017 is all about the 10 year anniversary of A Lesson Romantics, their biggest record they've ever made. We have a long, long, long nine week North American tour, um, and then we are taking a break. And they're gonna they're gonna go write and record a record this summer, which we're still figuring out who that's going to be with. They're actually in Florida right now doing their first writing trip for the record. And then they will do an international tour in the fall that hasn't been announced yet in the UK, Europe, Australia, and Asia. And then they will be doing, we're announcing today that they're doing the Warp Tour cruise. Um, and that'll wrap up the year. And then we will start game planning on, once we have the record, music video timelines, rollout timelines, but probably a spring to early summer record in 2018 for them they are a machine they you know those guys have built when i started working with those guys they were they had just made their record for atlantic that they hated they hated everybody at atlantic yeah. um and and they they you so know, funny I, i've never heard that before yeah <laughs> but they they came in at a weird time like i i signed them right before they put out oh well that that self self-titled record that had oh well oh well on it and mm-hmm. stuff and uh they were a band that, on paper, when you looked at it, you said, oh, this is over with. Like, mm. this pop-punk band made a record that flopped on a major label. They're done, you know? Mm-hmm. And they made the record of their career with that one, and it rejuvenated their career. And they are the easiest band I've ever worked with. They are the most outspoken, know what they want. It's a refreshing thing with a band, but they are incredibly talented, and we are very lucky to have them. And I'm excited about the new record. I'm excited about the 10-year tour. It's fun for me to be able to work on a record tour for a record that I was not a part of. But by the time this is over with, it'll be a record that will be gold. And so that's going to be fun as well. That's awesome. And then, yeah, other than that, like that's our management roster. We have a couple of things in the works that we're trying to sign right now that we're really excited about some new stuff, some developed stuff and some stuff we're trying to repair. And then the project stuff, we're always looking for new stuff at that point. Right now we have a merch company we do. We're in talks with a bunch of different brands about different creative opportunities we're going to do there. We take interns spring, summer, and fall, usually two to three a term, keep them very involved. Um, but that's kind of our business. And, you know, we're based in Nashville, Tennessee on Music Row. And uh, I, I love doing this. This has been my, you know, this has been my passion ever since I was 18 years old and figured out music could be a thing I could do. And I hope it's a, I hope that it's a way that I can kind of give back to those that have given back to me and make a living doing it. And I hope 16 years from now, people still want to hear what I have to say and still pay me money to give advice. So, yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists, 
from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.